The rest of us are going to go to James 1. Speaking before lunch is hard. Speaking after lunch is hard. The food is far enough away so those in the back are having a hard time smelling it, so that helps me. All right, we're in James 1, uh, and we have looked at trials already in James. James's theme is about a, a mature Christian, makes wise choices, um, and so uh, we often think that we are more mature than we are, and James is going to give us a mirror to look at that he's going to mention in uh, next week's uh, passage. Uh, but God's word is like a mirror. And as we look at the mirror, we see blemishes. As you woke up this morning, no, none of you look like you do now. And we're glad. We're glad you look better than you did when you first woke up. But I don't know about you, but if anyone rings the doorbell and you wake up from a nap or morning, you're like, oh, man, they're going to see something if I go to the door. And some of us have to go to the door at times. Um, and uh, we are embarrassed, and sometimes the person is embarrassed for us because we look that bad. But James, uh, next week, is going to tell us about God's Word, but God's Word is going to convict us, um, Lord willing, every week. Every week we look at the Bible. Every day that you look at the Bible, and if you memorize it, you meditate on it, you should be convicted by the Word of how we know what's right to do, and we're not doing it. And so we're going to be challenged on a regular basis, and I'll encourage you to re keep reading your Bible on a daily basis. And uh, if you don't know what things mean, that's okay. You can look those up or ask me or ask one of the other uh, leaders here at church or ask a godly friend uh, to help understand uh, God's Word. Well, today we are going to build off of last week's um, and I had uh, Craig read for us verses 12 to 21. We're going to go from 17 to 21, as you can see, and uh, how it fits together with the earlier passage. James tells us about trials, and when we go through trials, uh, we have to have cry out to God for wisdom. We're not crying out to God for relief from the trials. We're asking God for endurance to go through the trial. So there is... All of us want relief from trials, whether it's financial or physical or relational or any other types of trials. We want relief, we want relief, we want relief, we want relief, but sometimes God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, your strength will be made perfect in weakness. And Paul came to that conclusion in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's 12, and that's not what James 1 is about. James 1 is saying whenever we go through trials, we ask God for wisdom. We don't ask God for relief. Okay? And so mature Christians, as we go through trials, we cry out to God for wisdom, and he loves to give us wisdom. And we're going to see our God today is a giving God. We sang about it, we've read about it, and now we're going to hear it uh, preached from God's word that based on who we're talking to should provoke us to pray. We should be a praying people because of who we are talking to. Our God is a good God, and when we cry out to him for wisdom, he doesn't say, nope, you asked for wisdom for that same thing yesterday. No wisdom for you. That's not ever he, ever he says that, he will never say that to you. He will say, yes, I'll give it to you, and I'll give it to you abundantly. That's what the first part of James 1 
uh, verses 2 to 5. But we have to ask, James is going to warn us, to ask in faith. Faith keeps our hands steady, saying, God, I am expecting you to give me wisdom. Not relief, but wisdom. And God, increase my faith that if I don't get wisdom from you, I'm going to be helpless and hopeless to deal with these trials that you have allowed in my life. And so we ask God for wisdom in faith without doubting. If we doubt, we're like a wave of the sea. And we've watched hurricane pictures this week and see how much waves of the sea are affected by very strong winds. And that's the picture that James gives us. Our position before God, if we are poor, financially poor, or we're rich, is the same. We don't have less of a standing before God if we're poor, James 1.9. We don't have a better standing before God in prayer if we're wealthy. And so our wealth uh, doesn't matter before God. And so Christian brothers uh, all have a right to stand before the throne of God. And so that's uh, during trials especially, we cry out for wisdom on equal ground. And that's what verses 9 through 11 is about. Verse 12 Tells us about being steadfast under trial and promising when we go through and endure these tests that we will receive a crown of life, which is, I'm not sure what it is. It's something that's good. It's in heaven. It's eternal. And God promises to those who love him and loving God will help us to stay steadfast in trials. But we all struggle as we go through trials and ongoing trials. We have a struggle with blaming God. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, I don't deserve this. God, we demand of God relief in our trials, and that's all inappropriate way to talk to God. And so James 13 to 15 tells us, we struggle in life because we sin. And when we sin and we get consequences for sin, or we follow after our own heart and we get consequences and we blame God for those consequences because he's given it to us, that is not, God is not behind our temptation. He does not want us to blame him. He is not uh, giving us more temptation than we can bear. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, an excellent verse. I'd encourage you to memorize in addition with James 1, 13 to 15. So where does uh, sin come from? It comes from within. Satan is not here, although he is behind a lot of temptation. But even without Satan's help, we would still sin against God because we are corrupt from within. And that's what James 1, uh, 13 to 15 says. And because we lust and desire things that are sinful, we sin and sin when it's fully grown and dominating our life, it gives us death. And then we're told not to be deceived, my beloved brothers. And that deceit, deceit is a bridge between these two thoughts of what we saw last week, don't blame God and take full responsibility. It's my fault. So when I sin in my trials and trials without endurance equals temptation. When I sin and I give in to temptation, it's my fault. And it's always my fault. Whenever you sin, it's always your fault. You can't blame anyone else, but from the early, from Adam and Eve on, we are humans and we love to blame other people. We love to blame Satan. We love to blame God at times for our sin. And that is inappropriate. That's not how mature Christians think and live. So what do we do when, uh, and, uh, when we um, come before God? We need to be thinking, oh, don't deceive yourself. It's not God's fault. It's your fault that you sin. So God is not behind our sin and in our temptation and our death. Here is what God is doing, though, and that's where 
we need to be informed about uh, what God is doing. He's not behind the temptation, but he is behind the answers to prayer for wisdom. And he's also, let's look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's compare that verse, verse 17, go back to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I don't know about you, but whenever you're tempted, you get confused. I get confused. Is this right? Is this good? Will this help me? Will my life be better if I give in to this or resist it? And Satan, of course, in our flesh is going to lie to us saying, yes, you need that. Oh, what other people have. Other people have it much better than you, and you need what they have. Or whatever it is in the temptation, all of us uh, struggle with our own lust, and it's our fault when we are tempted, and we are told to flee temptation. But God's not behind the temptation. He is clearly, and James is going to show us a reverent picture of, of who God is. And while we're struggling with trials and we cry out to God and he gives us wisdom and we try to blame God sometimes when we, when we give in to temptation and we don't endure the trials, God is not behind all of our struggles. He's actually the one who's giving to us everything we need. So don't blame God whenever we are tempted and we give in to sin. God's not behind that. No, here's what we need to be thinking. And mature Christians will not blame God and they'll say, yes, it's my fault when I sin. But they'll also say, you know what? All of my life, it's all about God. From the moment we are saved, everything in life changes. And if your life didn't have a change, then you may not be a Christian. Because when you trust Jesus Christ as Lord, He's Master, everything about your life is, does it please God or does it not please God? We're learning that in Sunday school. And if it pleases God, then I'll do it. If it doesn't please God, eh, it doesn't need to be part of my life. Scripture tells us and shows us many stories and examples of what pleases God and what doesn't please God. What does God love? What does God hate? What does He expect of me? What, because of who he is, and, God, and Scripture tells us that. And James is going to tell us, this is who our God is. God is, and if we can say it's all about him, first point, only two points today. He is for us. And if we blame God for tempting us, we'll say, eh, God might be against me. It feels like God is giving me more temptation than I can bear. That's not an appropriate thought. He never gives you more than you can bear. He never gives me more than I can bear. I always will have a way to escape temptation. It's our job to look for it. If I don't take the way to escape, it's my fault. If we, we don't, we haven't had a fire drill here since I've been here, but if there's a fire here and there's an exit door there and there, and actually you can break any window if we have a fire and you can hop out the window, first floor, you're not going to probably get hurt, maybe breaking the glass, uh, but if you stay in this room and there's a fire and there's all these escapes and you say, you know what, I'm just going to pray for God to give me safety, okay? That's foolish. You're sitting in the middle of a fire, fire's all around you, and you've got all these ways to escape. You say, no, I'm just going to pray. We just need enough faith. No, you have given, you've been given escapes. 
You've got a door up here, you've got a door back there, you've got all these windows that you break and you just jump out and you can escape the fire. You're not tempted. God will never allow you to be tempted more than you are able. So God is not to blame for when we give in to temptation. But this is what God is doing. This is how we need to view God. In life, life's all about God. So what does James tell us life's about him? It says he is giving us every good gift and every perfect gift, gifts that will really help us. Everything that we really need in life, that's a really good gift. Now, we've all gotten gifts that were like, oh, thanks. You probably gotten a wedding gift if you got married. Uh, we got three toasters when we got married. That was great. I don't remember who gave them to us. It's been 18 years almost. So we kept two of those toasters in the trunk of our car trying to figure out where to take them back. So we go to Walmart. Nope, not here. Oh, one of them's here. Yes. We had, I, I think it was a toaster. I don't remember. It's been that long. We had one gift that we didn't need. We kept it in our trunk, and every store we went to, is this the place? No, not here, not here. It was Bed Bath & Beyond. I still remember that because it was like, finally, it's out of our trunk. But you have probably received gifts that you're like, thanks. Uh, they call them Yankee Swap, right? You ever been to a Yankee swap at Christmas time? And you purposely bring gifts that people don't really care to get. Okay, And there might be, if you had to do this on a regular basis, there might be gifts that rotate. Like, oh, who's bringing the, one of, one of those I've been to was a toilet. And uh, a new, it was new. Found it in a dumpster at a construction site. Kid brings it, tries to wrap it up, and it's obviously big and heavy. And you're like, no one wants that. Come on, it's cracked or something, and that's why it was in the dumpster. But it was new. And uh, whoever got that, they could take it home. If you want to store it for a year, next year, guess who's going to, it's not going to be you that's going to get it. You're bringing it. So those are the kind of gifts that you're like, thank you, but no thank you. I don't want it. And you watch the lines the day after Christmas are probably almost like Black Friday because people are taking a truckload of stuff back. And there at Walmart or wherever, big stores, they have shopping carts full of stuff that people didn't really want. It might have just been the wrong size or they just didn't want it or they got three of them or whatever it was. The gifts that we get from God are never, eh, no thanks. No, I need to take it back. It's never going to be like that. That's, our God doesn't give us worthless gifts or gifts that we don't need or shouldn't want as mature believers. So here, instead of blaming God while we're struggling, we're expecting God to provide for us. And every time he provides for us wisdom in trials, every time he answers prayer, we're saying it's just like God to do that. It's just like God to provide for us. And we're expecting it. And mature believers, you talk to people that are very mature, and they just, whenever they go through trials, they, their prayer life increases, and they're not blaming God. They realize they struggle with life, and it's their fault that they're struggling through life because of their sin nature. But they don't blame God, and they're expecting God to answer their prayer. And they're excited, but not surprised when God does answer prayer. Well, this is how mature people, when they look to God in trials and temptation, and God gives them every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
Everything good in your life is a gift to you from God. My wife is a gift to me from God, for sure. My kids, gifts to me from God, for sure. Being your pastor is a gift to, uh, to, uh, to me from God. I love being the pastor of Grace Bible Church. And we have to look at things in our lives that God has given us, whether it's cars and things that are material possessions or people in our lives. All of that, if we didn't choose it, like I didn't choose my family. You'll get to meet my parents if you haven't met them next Sunday. Lord willing, they'll be here. I didn't choose my parents, but I love my parents. They're a gift to me from God. I didn't choose my brothers. They're a gift to me from God. They caused a lot of trials, right? Various trials. No, we're good friends uh, today. You have people in your life that you say, ah, man, life would be better without them. But you have to look at them as a gift to you from God. And they are good. They help you. You say they're annoying. I want to get away from them. You need them. If God put them in your life and you didn't choose them, they're a gift to you from God. The trials that we have, if we look at them as gifts from God to test our faith, if you gave me a gift of a gym membership, I'd say, thanks, now I feel obligated to go to the gym. And if you don't like to go to the gym and I gave you a gym membership, you'd say, thanks, but eh. But this gym membership will help you to get more healthy, right? That's why we have gym membership. It's a good thing. God is for us. We can't, in our trials, think that God is against us. He's behind our temptation. He's to blame for anything that is our weakness. But we need to look at him as every good gift and every perfect gift is coming down. How does James describe God? Interestingly here, there should be a the in front of lights. So probably the father of the lights is in Greek and probably the lights of the heavens. So have you ever looked up at the stars and the sun and the moon and said, wow, those are big. Those are far away. Those are majestic. Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 136 tells us to give thanks to the Lord um, because he has put the sun and the moon and the stars and his steadfast love endures forever. So something about the father of the lights. Now there are a lot of cultures and a lot of religions that have worshipped or do worship the sun or the moon or the stars. That's not appropriate because there is a Father who has created all of them. And we are to worship God who is the Father of the lights of the heavens. But it's also, continues James 1.17 says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And a lot of scholars have struggled with this phrase in the Greek. It's difficult to translate, but uh, I think our ESV is pretty clear that whenever there is deception, whenever there is deceit, whenever there is strong desires that lead us to sin and temptation and we struggle with trials, it's not God's fault. God's not behind that. This is what he's doing. He's giving us good things from above. He is over, he's sovereign over all of the creation. And when you go to God, you're not going to get something different one time and something different another time. God is always the same. 
He is always sovereign. He is always, according to this verse, giving us good and perfect gifts. They're coming down to us from God, and we need to, when we're going through trials even, we need to be giving thanks back to our God for giving us every good and perfect gift. God is always for us as Christians, and a mature Christian is going to think that way. God is for me. He is not to blame. It's my fault when I sin. God is for me. He is the creator. He's the stainer. He is the consistent giver of what is good. He doesn't give me good things sometimes and bad things other times. He's never given me a Yankee swap kind of gift. God has always given me things that are good for me as a Christian. That's verse 17. Verse 18. Continuing this thought of God giving us good things, and he's not to blame. He is for us. Of his own will, God chose us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That is, he brought us to life, eternal life. He brought us, we were once dead in trespasses, and he brings us to life. We are born again of God's will. God chose us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He uses his word to convince us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So James says, God chose us. By his own will, he brought us forth, he redeemed us, he justifies us. He, By his word, the word of truth, that we should be a kind, and he gives us a reason why he saves us, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First, first fruit off of an apple tree in the fall is like, oh, wow, I knew this, this fruit was coming. I can see it small. You have tomato plants that are probably maybe still producing tomatoes, but the first tomato is the best because it's the first. Oh, yes, finally. We're finally getting fruit. All of these months of weeding and watering and everything is now producing fruit, and God wants us as saved, rescued believers that he chose that we should be a kind of first fruit, showing creation what our God is like. And when we go through trials and we blame God or we cry out to God doubting for wisdom and we're not getting any wisdom and we're just really unstable, we're not living for why God saved us. But whenever we say, you know what? When God saved me, life is all about him. I want to live for him. I want to proclaim him. I want to give him all the credit for anything good in my life. It's God's God's gift to me, that's why I have good things in my life. It's my fault I have bad things in my life. It's God's fault, good thought, fault, that I have good things in my life. And every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. God gets the credit for everything good, everything good in our lives as mature Christians. And we take all the blame, all of the blame for everything bad in our lives. That's what James here is telling us. So James, verse 18, 118 says, God is our Savior. He is the architect of our salvation. Remember, he is not behind any of our temptations. He himself tempts no one. He is not figuring out how we can fall into sin. Ha ha, they didn't endure that trial. Now they're, now they're getting into temptation. No, that's not our God. We don't, we don't blame him. He's our Savior. He is for us. He has designed our salvation he chose when to save us, when to redeem us, when to make us his own so that we would be proclaiming and showing the world what salvation, what our God is like. And we had the privilege yesterday, we had the privilege Friday, 
at Bill's funeral to tell people who don't know God that God really is for you. God really does love you. He wants the best for your life, and sin is not the best for our lives. So I have an application at the end of each of our slides here, so this is the application. We should never, never blame him for our temptations to sin. And a positive of that, we should always give God credit for everything good in our lives. Never blame him for weaknesses. Always give him credit for anything good. So anything good, any good personality that you have developed, any good amount of money that you can put in the bank, any good relationships you, you have here on earth, all of that credit goes to God and not you. That's how mature Christians think on a regular basis. And don't ever blame God for your sin. So we give God all the credit for everything good. We take all the blame for everything bad. Seems simple, right? Hard to do. Very hard to do as sinful human beings. But as a church, we can help each other to do this as we go through various trials. So he is for us. That's the all about him. Then verses 19 to 21. So if you ever go through a trial, you're going to have a lot of different reactions. Okay? If something really bad or tragic happens to you this week, I hope it doesn't, but if it does, you're going to have a multitude of reactions, probably in a, a very short amount of time. Okay? And so James is going to tell us some of the reactions that people have when they go through various trials. How do mature Christians, when they go through trials, how do they react? Because when the people that are closest to us in life, whenever we go through various trials, and people know it that are close to us, they know that we're going through these trials, they're watching us react. Yesterday we talked to people, and sometimes people may have talked to us wanting a reaction, saying something like, I'm an atheist. Okay, so how do we react to that? Or I'm something else, this is my identity, and how are we going to react? And we react like Christ and God helps us to react like Christ in various trials. Now, this could be a whole message. Verse 19 could be a whole message and probably a whole series, but we don't, we're not going to take that amount of time. But I'll let you meditate on this. And you probably have verse 19. If you are quick to get angry, verse 19 is, a, is one of the first verses I'd memorize. Or I would tell you, this is a verse that has really helped me. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. I have that verse in my memory because I am slow to listen. I am quick to get angry and I am very quick to speak. Okay? So this is exactly opposite of human nature. It is going to be, as James is going to typically give us, opposite of human nature expectations. That's why we need the Bible, because we don't naturally do this. So what motivates our reactions? Let's look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Okay, so James says, okay, you guys have gone through trials. Some Most commentators put a, a space here, so I'm going to group these verses together. But how does the word of God help us when we go through various trials? And how does it help us to be mature as Christians? Know this, my beloved brothers. We've seen that before, right? You can see that back in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. He brings people in, and it, it's like we talked in Sunday school about confrontation. When you have to confront someone, 
You want them to know before the confrontation, I am for you. I'm not your enemy. When I have to tell you something very weighty and heavy and how you're disobeying God or how you're ruining your life or whatever it is I got to confront you with, I want you to know I am for you. Why do we come across that way? Because God is for them too. And this passage will help us keep that in mind as well. God is for us. It's all about him though. If your life is not all about God, you're going to be constantly convicted and irritated by God's word. And so God helps us to react. And our reactions show us and other people what we think is really important. So we need to be, as James 1.19 says, let every person, every Christian needs to live this way, being quick to hear, a good listener, slow to speak, slow to anger. Have you ever heard from someone who confronted you? You need to think before you speak. How many of you have heard that before? Oh, I've heard it a lot. Because I struggle a lot with what I say. As a parent, I say that a lot. And as a youth pastor, I said it a lot. Think before you speak. What's coming out of our mouths oftentimes is foolishness at best and sinful at worst. And what is going to help motivate us to live this way? Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. It's God's righteousness. God always does what is right. Remember, he is pictured here in verse 17 as a giver of all these good gifts. And if we just focus on that, he's not to blame. We should praise him for the giver of all good things. And he's the one, he's the reason that we're really saved. And he used the word in our lives. And he wants us to live for him. And how we react in various trials needs to always be consistently this way. Every trial. So you're going to get a trial and you may be in a trial right now. This is how we respond to every trial quick to hear. So if you come to my office and you are a mess and you say, I just need to talk to someone. You know what I need to do? I need to be quick to hear. I don't need to say, here's tissues, take a couple pills. I'll see you next week. That's not being quick to hear. That's probably not very helpful. I need to be listening. And Proverbs says, if you give counsel without listening, that's folly. So even if we have really good intentions, we want to help people, we really want to talk whenever we're around people. I really like talking. And I was quiet, probably hard to believe, in high school. But when I get in a group, I just can't wait for it's my, till it's my turn to talk. I don't know if you're like that, but you're like, okay, when is it my turn? I got, I got something to say. I got something I want to share. I want to talk. But if we're trying to help people and we're trying to think how God, what God expects of us as we're helping people through various trials or we're going through various trials, we need to be quick to listen. Listening is so much harder than talking. What did I just say? Good job. All right, so some of you are listening. But you know what I just did for you? What my wife does for me. Hey, what did I just say? Uh, yeah, um, football's on. Uh, when I, football's on, I, I got to pass, right, as a, as a husband, as a dad? And my daughter said, Dad, I hate football season. 
because I don't, we don't get you. We get the shell of you and you're glued to football. And that's unfortunate. And I don't want to be a dad that is present but not there. It's bad parenting to be in the room and not engaged in a conversation. Bad parenting. And when your kids are talking to you, sometimes they talk foolishness and I just don't listen to that. I just tune it out. I got a lot of stuff I got to do. But there are times, hey, Dad, what? What do you think about this? Oh, I better listen. Why do you ask that question? Well, I was talking to a friend at school, and they, I need to be listening in those kind of conversations. Those are not the conversations that, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yep, okay. All right, yeah, talk to your mom. That's not helpful. That's disengaged parenting. That's not being quick to hear. And we may have people around us that are going through various trials and we have the truth, we have the help that they need, a a picture of God that is we have grown and are going through trials and we can help other people that are going through similar trials and help them to know that God is for them. That God's righteousness is is the goal. It motivates our reactions. And so we react like our God. I'm sure as, as Jesus walked with Peter, James, and John and the other disciples that they had a lot of questions for him. We have some of those questions recorded, but they walked hours upon hours some days and they talked probably the whole time or a lot of the time. And God's righteousness, you could see it in action if you watch Jesus. You can read it in the Gospels. And James expects us to react like Jesus. Was he quick to hear Here comes a widow running up. Hey, my son is dead or he's sick. Or here's a centurion. Hey, my servant's sick. And here is a woman with the issue of blood and and she's touching him. Who touched me? And he listened. He took time to listen to people. If you want to minister to people as a mature Christian, which I think you want to, you better be quick to hear. There are people that are going through various trials and sometimes trials are very, very complicated. And you have to listen and listen, and listen. God's righteousness motivates our listening. It also motivates us being slow to speak. You know the benefit of being slow to speak? We can evaluate what we say before we say it. Revolutionary! We just think before we speak. Now, what are we thinking before we speak? Will what I say be what God would say to this person if God was talking to them? That's how we are slow to speak, because it's all about God's righteousness. God would always say the right thing. If you talk to Jesus, and we had that privilege, he would always tell you the right thing. He would always not talk when he wasn't supposed to talk. He would always talk at just the right time. And sometimes he'd cut Peter off and say, get behind me, Satan. We're not going to allow that kind of thinking in the disciples here. Don't try to talk me out of going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. So there were times when his righteousness caused him to be, he always did what was right. So every one of us is expected. You cannot blame your nationality. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. Scottish. I'm whatever. You cannot blame your nationality. God does not have an asterisk. I thought about this. God doesn't have an asterisk by in his book of works. Oh, that person is this, so they get a pass. They can indulge their sinful, selfish anger because they're this nationality. No. 
Or God doesn't know what home I grew up in. Oh, yes, he does. He chose your home. You do not have a past with your environment or who, who you grew up around or how your parents treated you or how your teachers treated you. You have no past for giving in to sin. It is not God's fault. It's your fault if you give in to sin. It's not your teacher's fault. It's not your upbringing fault. It is your fault if you continue to sin. And our reactions many times are sinful reactions. Why are they sinful? Because we're not thinking about God's righteousness as we react. It's a natural reaction. It's not a supernatural reaction. That's why James says, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. You know what that will do for you? That will help you to be a lot more like Christ. You'll think before you speak. Would what I say be what Christ would want me to say in this situation? Would how I'm going to say it be how Christ would say it? Or is this, this really feels good, so I just want to say it. It's probably indulgent of your flesh. And then be slow to anger. Christ was perfectly slow to anger, although he was angry at least twice. Visibly, understandably, righteously, perfectly righteously angry. But it was only twice. And how many times we get angry in a regular week? We get angry so many times. And it is selfish anger. We should not be angry at that person who cut us off in the car. Nope. That's not, that's not righteous anger. Now, you should be angry whenever you hear God's name taken in vain. Yep, get a little angry about that. And then ask for wisdom. Do I need to listen to more? Do I need to get away from this? I need to be slow to speak. I need an opportunity to, to maybe confront this person or just ask God for grace to not allow that um, to uh, stick in my head or whatever it is. But we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And verse 20 tells us why. So why am I slow to anger? Why am I slow to speak? Why am I very quick to hear? Because it's about God's righteousness. It's not about me. It's all about him. Verse uh, 20 says, For the anger of man, selfish anger here, does not produce the righteousness of God. So we're going through various trials. And these trials can cause us to be very irritable. And irritable people look like they're slow to listen. They are quick to speak and they're quick to get angry. Exactly opposite of verse 19. But as we go through various trials, that's our natural human response. All of us struggle with that. And if you don't, you're lying. You're deceiving yourself, James would say. We have to think it's not about us. When we go through various trials, God is for us. It's, it's all about him. So what I do not have the right as a mature Christian to do what I want to do. I don't have the right to get angry at who I want to get angry. I don't have the right to say what I want to say. I just speak my mind. That's not a spiritual gift. That's a spiritual weakness. Mature people think before they speak. Is this what Christ would say? And what motivates us in our reactions is the same thing that motivates our righteousness. God's righteousness motivates our righteousness.
You know what? God expects us to be righteous like he is righteous. That's not an impossible thing. You'd say it's impossible, yes, on this earth, yes. But if God expects it of us, he gives us all the grace to accomplish that. We struggle with it as in our flesh, but we have the ability to display God's righteousness. We have the ability to display righteous anger like Christ did. We have the ability to be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to get angry. You don't have the ability if you're not if you're not a believer, but the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, will do this. If we're walking in the flesh, we won't do this. The Spirit of God helps us to produce godly righteousness, and we need to think this way. So James says, know this, don't do this. Why don't you get angry so quickly? Because your selfish anger doesn't help anyone to see God's righteousness. But if we are slow to anger and slow to speak and quick to hear, people will say, that is odd. Why are you like that? You are so anti-human or unhuman in doing that. So anti how we all, everybody is thinking. We don't think like that. People don't act like that. What causes you to be so patient and don't take credit. It's not about you. The only reason that we're patient is the Holy Spirit tells us to be patient and we submit to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gets credit. God gets credit for our patience. So God's righteousness motivates our righteousness. Then verse 21. Therefore, because we are to be this way, and we all struggle with our own self-righteousness, which is corrupt, it's gross, it's disgusting. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Those are from very strong language. If you've, brought, if you've seen raw sewage, if you've seen roadkill that's been there a long time, that is the filthiness. That's the idea of that word. The most gross thing that you hold your nose is like, oh, we got to get rid of that smell. That's how much our selfish anger smells to God. It's disgusting. And we're about working the righteousness of God. So we have to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And if we let wickedness go unchecked in us, it's like weeds. If you let crabgrass grow unchecked, go unchecked, in your garden, it's going to take over. You're going to have a nice weed garden, but where are the plants? Where's the fruit? It's struggling to survive because the weeds are choking it out. And that's how our natural man is with, if we just give in to our flesh, give in to our flesh, give in to our flesh, wickedness eventually is going to be rampant in our flesh. And we're going to invent wickedness, as Romans 1 says. And we have to be always on guard for the, the filthiness and the rampant wickedness. And in this context, it's selfish anger. Selfish anger, unchecked over a period of time, smells horrible to God and other people. And inside of us, it's rampant wickedness. It is like rampant infection that's in you that has to be amputated. And God has a way of amputating sin. So we have to always put away we have to confess and forsake, as other passages in the New Testament will tell us, and receive with meekness 
the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We cannot humbly, we cannot proudly receive God's word. If you came today thinking church is all about me, I hope people like me. I hope people like my singing, like what I'm wearing, like what I say. They laugh at my jokes. They like my food I brought. They like my conversation. They like me. If it's about you, you're going to be disappointed. And that's not how mature Christians think. We gather together as, as, as God's people, and we're thinking this way. It's all about God. Worship is about God. Our giving's about God. Our listening to the word is about God. Our applying this passage of scripture is all about God. Uh, it's about God's righteousness motivates my righteousness and my fight against sin every day and me putting off uh, sin and wickedness and pride and rebellion against God and my own selfish anger. That is all part of my showing love for God. And I have to do that with meekness. Meekness is strength. It is humility. The implanted word. God puts the word inside of us to transform us from the inside out. And that's the idea of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And he's not talking to Christians. He's already talking to Christians, so the, the salvation is not uh, probably the um, eternal salvation, but it's able to help your soul. It's able to help you every day. But if you give in to sin as a Christian, and you can, you have that ability, uh, it's foolish, but your sin's going to destroy you. And if you don't give in to sin, if you fight against the filthiness and the rampant wickedness inside of you and you receive with humility God's word and it's growing inside of you, it's going to help your soul. That's what this verse says. So two applications here and, and an illustration. So we listen quickly and we need to listen more and more and more. Before we speak, we think God's righteousness before we speak or get angry. Is, would this please God? Sometimes anger would, but most of the time, us getting irritated and angry with the various trials, it doesn't please God. It's just, I'm not getting what I want, and I'm going to show everybody I don't like it. Okay, that's selfish anger. We, Before we speak or we get angry, we think about God's righteousness, and then we actively put off sin so that we can humbly be transformed. And transformation is about being like Christ, exalting Christ, speaking for Christ, ministering for Christ. Lena Sandell, I don't know much about her other than she wrote a hymn that we're going to close with day by day and with each passing moment. Shortly after her father drowned, and I think she witnessed this tragic event, is when she wrote day by day. You say that's a pretty significant trial. It is. And several hymns that we sing on a regular basis are born out of significant trials. And as we sing day by day, as you go through trials, you'll see that God is the creator and the sustainer. God is the savior. God gets the credit for it. day by day. As I walk with him, he gets all of the glory for everything that is good uh, in my life. And we will uh, turn to, in our hymnals, 529, uh, day by day, the words are not going to be on the screen, so you will need a hymnal. This song was written in 1865. 
when the Civil War ended. And the truth is good. Good songs will last more than one or two or three generations. The best songs last. And this, is, this has been sung by six or seven generations because it's good. We try to find songs that are good. And this song will help us as we go through trials. This song has helped me as I've gone through probably one of my go-to songs that I um, almost have memorized, but I hum it, whistle it, sing it um, throughout the day. And I love uh, the words of this song, and I hope that uh, singing it will help you to um, be thinking about it. I'll have uh, Brandon lead us after the song. I'll ask Brandon to pray for our food, and then we'll be dismissed to uh, lunch.